Are we ready? <clears throat> yes. La 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 la. La la. Yeah, so they hurt, it hurt my brain. What hurt your brain? Planning episodes. Because it got to the point where I was planning, I was reading the book to plan this episode. I was writing out this episode plan mm-hmm. while also watching the TV show and taking my handwritten notes that it will eventually become an episode plan for that. Right. And I think we had just resi- decided that we, when we were going to record the first episode, so I sort of had to carry the first and second half of the book and the TV version of the first half of the book all in my brain at once. This is what they call emotional labour. Yeah. Uh, so I should have watched episode three by now, but life got away from me, so I'm going to be doing episode three tomorrow. Cool. Well, episode three and four, hopefully, and then finishing it off on Wednesday. Cool. But we, as we're not recording Thursday now, it's not an emergency oh, yeah. anymore. I just want to get through the watching so I can write the episode plan, mm-hmm. and then I can let my brain have a little holiday from it and also start reading Ward. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Carrying the three different episodes for one book is brain sore. When it gets to the point where I need to start working on the next book when we're not quite done recording or I've still got to listen to episodes yeah, um, before we release them for the previous books, my brain definitely starts going a bit, ooh. Yeah. Yeah, especially as we're doing two books that have death in them. Uh, Yes, (laughs) but very different deaths. Very, well, yes. 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 I can't imagine Discworld Death being overly excited about the end of the world. No, sorry, forgive me, I've just remembered a little bit I forgot to put in. There we go. <laughs> awesome, that's all right. It's relevant to what we were saying. Does it involve death? No. Ah, well, kind of, tangentially. Yay, tangential death. More of a, uh, one of Pratchett's ideas that you can see come back later. Oh, right. Tangential death would make a great band name. <laughs> like a like mellow metal band. <laughs> tangential death, yeah. Oh. Tangential, well, what? No, no, this is like literally nothing to do with the books or the podcast at all. I just remembered that I had to spend time around the dullest human alive on Friday and it made me want to stick things in my eyes. He hangs out at the pub quite a lot, but I normally manage to dodge talking to him because we have nothing in common, but I guess he decided it was time to chat to me Mm. and he was really drunk, but all he knows how to talk about is metal. And like I've already said multiple times, like, yeah, I'm just not really that into metal. Just just not, souls. And so we were outside, and then he was like, "So, what kind of metal do you like?" None of it. No metal. I'm not. I'm not into metal. So okay, but like, if you had to like, do you like like melodic? And I was like, Jesus. It's like, I guess I like Nightwish. Oh yeah, isn't Tasha Turin and Maiden? So do you also like Within Temptation and Lacuna? And started listening all these bands, and it's like, would it have helped if you started talking about Taylor Swift? I I think that's what I'm gonna do next time. I think I may have to go into full Taylor Swift or maybe I should learn more about K-pop and start talking about K-pop. If you do, I request formally that you keep it away from me. No, it's fine. I've tried to be into K-pop and I just... I really wanted to be into K-pop for a bit because I love the videos. Yeah. I really love the videos. But I just... No, I'm not into K-pop. No. Turns out. I, I think I like being able to sing along to whatever I'm listening to and I can't really sing along to K-pop. Yeah, not without learning Korean or something. Yeah, and I feel like learning Korean just to be into a music genre is probably not a sensible use of my time. No, no, I suppose not. Say that I did recently download a song by the popular band The Teriyaki Boys. Ah. 
No, they did a really bad song for Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. Oh. <laughs> but uh, it's quite entertaining, so I downloaded it to put on in the kitchen. <laughs> Actually, yeah, no, so I didn't do Taylor Swift, but this guy was like, so what music do you listen to? What did you last download? And I was like, uh, Teriyaki Boys, Barbie Girl, Steps. And then he still kept talking to me about metal. Mm. I was like, I just... That's unfortunate. How did you get... How did you get that I would like metal from me saying I don't like metal and recently downloaded a song by the Teriyaki Boys? Yeah. Spelt B-I-O-Z. Zed. It's a funny way to spell teriyaki. <laughs> that shouldn't be that funny, Francine. And this clearly shows I'm somewhat sleep deprived. <laughs> All right, probably probably want to get on with it then. Oh, do you want to make a podcast? I do want to make a podcast, yeah. Oh, let's make a podcast. Hello and welcome to The Truth Shall Make Ye Fret, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discworld series in chronological order, except... Except today, when we're doing something else. We're talking... This is our ineffable episode, part two. Oh, ineffable. It's ineffable that we are talking about good omens. Huzzah, are you going to explain to me exactly what ineffable... Good. What ineffable means later. I'm saving that for the episodes we do on the TV series because I forgot to look it up before I came over today. Cool, cool. Anyway, okay. so we are ineffably discussing Good Omens. This is part two of our Good Omens chat. A little chat. Uh, second half of the book today. And then we will be back in your ears next week. Sorry, personally. Oh, <laughs> we'll be re-entering your luggles. <laughs> <laughs> strolling back down your ear canal <laughs> worming along the lobe oh, rapping God. gently on the eardrum and allowing ourselves into your brain with the minimum amount of intrusion god this got weird <laughs> we'll be back next week to talk about bye <laughs> that's it that's the episode <laughs> this is now a horror podcast <laughs> we lull you into a false sense of security with Terry Pratchett horrify you and run away mm-hmm. No, uh, sorry, I'm gesturing to the microphone like our <laughs> listeners are there. That's where they live. I've been practising... Tiny little people in the globe. I've been practising for a poetry gig for a week and it's been cancelled. This is like all of my left excess performance energy that has nowhere else to go. Mm, well, I'll be looking out for an accidental iambic pentameter. Oh, it lurks. It lurks. It lurks in the shadows, along with the catalytic trochaic tetrameter. Sorry, I'm mentally trying to arrange everything in iambic pentameter now because that's one of my fun things. Let's so, not do So it. let's go ahead and do some more of what we're doing. Nice. That's like the podcasting. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Not, not cool. talking. Balls. Anyway, spoilers. Uh, major spoilers ahead for Good Omens. All of the book. All of it. Don't don't listen if you haven't read it. Yeah, like go listen at least to the audiobook. This is not a good replacement for reading the book. Mm-hmm. Um, no spoilers Oh, God. Uh, no spoilers for the TV series, which I mean, is mostly the same as the book, but we're going to avoid yeah. talking about it until we're on it. Yeah, I mean, spoilers for the plot of the TV series. But... Uh, and as far as Discworld goes, we are avoiding avoiding spoiling any major events in Discworld books. Yep. And we are saving all discussion of the Shepherd's Crown until we get there mm. on our lovely journey. On our journey. Our... Extra disclaimer last week. I was knackered by the end of the episode, so I forgot to check. Did I Did I yuck any yums? Do you recall? I think between the two of us, we probably yucked a yum or two. But not like a lot. Yeah. I, so I, I definitely forgot to go out of my way to yuck a yum. So yeah. not many yums will be yucked in the making of this podcast. Yeah. I'm in a much better mood. So 
Excellent. I'm in quite a good mood despite eating too much rice. <laughs> you saw me stuff four large slices of pizza in my face before we began. So I deeply, let's deeply see if that kicks it. in. <laughs> cool. Do you have anything to follow up on, Francine? Um, since last week, I don't think so. Sorry. No, it's fine. I forgot to give myself homework. Uh, yeah, I, I have follow-up about Discworld, but I think we'll save that. Save that till... Yeah, till we're back, back on the flatland. I'm quite excited for Discworld. Do you have any uh, previously on for us? I do. I did do that, but yeah. Cool. Uh, so. <laughs> I think I may have uh, been a little overly ambitious with this. Let's see. <laughs> Go on, Francine. Previously on Good Omens, the world begins and, after a while, begins to end. Therefore, the whole process are two supernatural entities, one devilish, one angelic, both suffering from fully justified cases and imposter syndrome. Kicking off the apocalypse, two-hit-for-hell Crowley passes the Antichrist to a scatterbrained satanic nun who packs off the adversary, destroyer of kings, angel of the bottomless pit, great beast that is called dragon, prince of this world, father of lies, spawn of Satan and lord of darkness, Adam for short, to a less than illustrious lifestyle. As Adam grows up in an Enid Blyton book, Enid Blyton book, Crowley and angelic hoarder Aziraphale try and put the brakes on revelations. The four horse people of the apocalypse stir from anonymity and two youngsters start moving towards their ancestral destinies. I very much enjoy the pre-production work, but writing clever things is beyond me. Well, so it's not true. <laughs> well, okay. Writing clever things for the podcast on top of all the other plays. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which will, yeah, tiny bit of follow up in the, the uh, magic shop monologue now named Deus Ex Magic Shop is going to be performed. Oh, cool! Well done. I'm very proud of this. Deus Ex Magic Shop. Fucking love it. Brilliant. Yeah. Might put a ticket really link in the show notes. Yeah, Shameless self promotion at all times. I mean, it's literally your show, so yeah, right. So in this section of the book. Good omens. We begin on Saturday morning with the international express driver delivering the crown to pollution who has taken over from Pestilence and okay. the Four Horse People. Uh, Mr. Postman then meets Death while getting hit by a van, funnily enough. <laughs> uh, and his delivery is now complete. Oh, so he's, he's already given the sword and the um He scales. did that in the last yeah. half. Okay, that was at the end, yeah. 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 Uh, Newton Pulsifer is sent off to Tadfield with his armour of righteousness uh, by private... No, it's not private. Sergeant Shadwell. Sergeant Shadwell, thank you who pops a pin into the map to show where young Newton has gone. He's gone to investigate an optimal microclimate. We meet Agnes Nutter, witch of the 17th century, and then immediately watch her die by blowing up. Legend. Mm. Uh, this is Anathema's ancestor, yeah. who wrote the Book of Prophecies. As Newt gets to Tanfield, a flying saucer turns up, because Adam is starting to manifest his destiny by imagining things. He um, really believes he does. He, his, and his belief, it turns out, is rather powerful. Mm. Newt crashes his car, probably something to do with the flying saucer. Mm. Uh, the them rescue Newt and take him to Anathema, who obviously saw this coming and had bandages at the ready. Adam starts getting very upset about the state of the world after a night of reading magazines and starts to seem a little bit suspiciously evil. And more of his imaginations manifest and Atlantis turns up. Newton Anathema continue to try and figure out where the Antichrist is as Adam keeps manifesting. Mm. At this point, a tree in South Africa grows and destroys a shopping mall. Mm. Legend. The Kraken rises. Uh, Shadwell's pin in his map repeatedly starts pinging out. And he decides to set out to get a bit more information. Um, he's also at this point being phoned by both Crowley and Aziraphale. It turns out he is both of their agents on Earth. <laughs> Uh, and they've both tried to send him to Tadfield. 
Shadwell t- realises he needs a bit of cash. Mm. Aziraphale has figured out where the Antichrist is. He calls up the Metal- Metatron and is told not to stop the apocalypse because actually they'd rather like war. Metatron is a transformer, yeah? No, that's Megatron. Right. Metatron is the voice of God. Oh, yeah, yeah. Played yeah, by yeah. Alan Rickman in Dogma. Uh, Shadwell turns up at Aziraphale to demand cash of him and accidentally discorporates him a little bit. We pop over to Crowley's flat. We learn about him screaming at his houseplants. Haster and Liger, the Dukes of Hell, turn up. Crowley kills one with holy water and traps the other in an answer phone. Shadwell, now in shock at the power of his finger, goes to Madame Tracy's for a little lie down. Aziraphale's bookshop catches fire. Crowley runs in, manages to grab the Book of Prophecy. The horse people meet up at a motorway services. We get a brief uh, apocalyptic Adam interlude because he's now pretty ready to destroy the world. The discorporated Aziraphale travels around the world, popping into an Aboriginal bloke, a Haitian performing voodoo, and an American televangelist. Crowley is heading off to Tadfield, but the M25 has gone extra batshit. (laughs) The four horse people, having befriended some other bikers in the uh, motorway cafe, are now riding out, also towards Tadfield. Uh, the other horse people don't make it very far. Madam Tracy hosts a seance and Aziraphale possesses her. We start getting rains of fish on the M6. We uh, come... I'm setting a really good weather forecast for boys. Good work. <laughs> and today, gentle rains of fish on the M6. The four horsemen ride out towards Tadfield. Uh, 30% chance of fish precipitation on the M6. There's a really good watchman joke in there somewhere, but I can't mm. quite manage it. Over to you, Joanna. We go back to Newton Anathema who, uh, during an earthquake, have just uh, done the horizontal fandango. Hey! <laughs> uh, we experienced them <laughs> Where's a bit... that from? I can't remember. <laughs> They're a bit post-coital. It's gross. They shouldn't have slept together. We'll get that. Luckily, Agnes says that they only did it once. <laughs> Aziraphale, in Madame Tracy's body, convinces Shadwell and Madame Tracy to head to Tadfield. The spare horsemen of the apocalypse crash into the fish rain and die, apart from Scuzz, who really wants to tell its dead comrades that his real horseman name is I Really Hate Fish. <laughs> Crowley bombs it out of London with his car burning and falling apart. Adam comes to and realises that he's not apocalyptic enough to hurt his friends. So he becomes human, but even more so, mm-hmm. because, you know, power's manifest- manifesting, explains to his friends that they need to stop the apocalypse. Newt works out that him and Anathema really ought to head to the airbase. Aziraphale makes the scooter fly, heading towards Tadfield. R.P. Tyler, out walking his dog, directs first the horse people, Aziraphale, Crowley and his burning car, and them to the airbase. Everyone infiltrates it around the same time, and the horse people go play with computers and start fucking shit up. Newton finally admits to Anathema that actually he doesn't really know anything about computers. Adam and his friends face off against the horse people of the apocalypse and win. Beelzebub, who is Lord of the Flies, and Metatron, the voice of God, both turn up to yell at Adam for cancelling the apocalypse, and we have a lovely little chat about ineffability. Satan almost turns up, but Adam is really rather powerful, and somehow his father, Mr. Young, appears instead. Hmm. The postman comes back, not dead after all, collects the flaming sword, the crown, the scales, etc. Mm-hmm. Yay. Mm-hmm. And now it's Sunday. <laughs> On Sunday, Anathema receives a new prophecy book, the sequel, and decides she doesn't want to be a descendant the rest of her life. Xerophel and Crowley meet up in St. James's Park. They head to the Ritz and a nightingale against all odds sings in Berkeley Square. Shadwell and Miss Madame Tracy agree to settle down. Adam is grounded, but he runs off to have a little chase with Dog and Nick an Apple. Well, he wasn't really breaking the rules, was he? Because what else was he supposed to do? Dog got through the hedge. He had to chase after him. And oh, there yeah. just happened to be a circus at the end of that road. Yeah. And apples to scrump. And apples to scrump. <laughs> God, I love the word scrump. 
Um, so yeah, so that's what happened in this section of the book, which yeah. is the second half of it. I'm going to say Apocalyptic Interlude, possibly the best metal band name we've come up with so far. That was a, um, So, helicopter and loincloth check-in. Yes. Helicopter! Oh, good is grief, mentioned. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. There is an act. Well done. This paid off, finally. Hey, we're only on our fourth book. Yeah. So, you know. Uh, yeah, I get, it seems a little longer, doesn't it? And we've only done three Discord books so far. It's just spending time with me feels like an age, doesn't it? <laughs> In a nice way. Thanks, Francine. So on page 253, we get a lovely footnote about Crowley chatting away to Leonardo da Vinci. Mm-hmm. Leonardo asks Crowley, anyway, explain this helicopter thing again, will you? There's um, helicopters later as well. They are briefly mentioned uh, in reference to how hot it is above the... M25. Oh, yes, and the helicopters are melting. Yeah. Yeah, we get two helicopters. See, it was mm-hmm. totally worth having a helicopter slash loincloth watch as Any a loincloths? regular feature. No loincloths. No. Saffron robes, but. Saffron robes from the uh, burrowing Tibetans. Uh, togas, I assume, on the Atlanteans. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, a toga's like a very big loincloth, in that it is a cloth covering one's loins, among other things. <laughs> Fun fact, loin is actually lower back. Is it? Yeah. Um, If you you think think with your chef brain. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right, that's where you get loin fillets from. But I've still always thought of girding my loins as being... Yeah. Oh, to gird one's loins. That's to do with like putting on a... um... Yeah, like a battle skirt or something. There was a meme going around. I don't remember. Yeah, it was something to do with how you'd tuck up a toga to turn it into like a sensible pair of shorts. Hey, we're back on togas. Hey. Excellent. Which are big loincloths. Yes. Okay. No, do you know what? I'm not I'm not going to argue with you on that because I found it pleasing. Yes. I like the thought of a toga being a big loincloth. Uh-huh. Quotes. Um, when the International Express guy uh, is delivering a message to Death and then obviously dies, mm. uh, Death says to him, don't think of it as dying. Just think of it as leaving early to avoid the rush. And I don't know, that line makes me very sad, but it's also very sweet. It is. Well, it's it's been so heavily associated with Pratchett since his death, I think. Yeah. Because it's possibly his most succinct quote on death. Yeah. And of course, there's no guarantee he actually wrote it, considering it's in a book he co-wrote. I mean, he probably did write that line, realistically. I would be really surprised if he hadn't. Yeah. Yeah. I would assume he wrote quite a bit of death's material. Yeah. There's... um. Um, okay, yeah, one more quickly. Uh, when we have the seance, Madame Tracy's seance, mm-hmm. which is obviously Madame Tracy is making all of this up, um, but she's talking about Beryl, who regularly comes to the seance to talk to her husband, yeah. Ron. And there's a little example of how Beryl goes on. Oh, do read this one out, actually, because... I love this yeah. so much. Now, Ron, you remember our Eric's littlest Sibylla. Well, you wouldn't recognise her now. She's taken up macrame and our Letitia, you know, our Karen's oldest, she's become a lesbian, but that's all right these days. And is doing a dissertation on the films of Sergio Leone as seen from a feminist perspective. And our Stan, you know, our Sandra's twin, I told you about him last time. Well, he won the darts tournament, which is nice because we all thought he was a bit of a mother's bay. While the guttering over the sheds come loose, but I spoke to our Cindy's latest, who's a jobbing builder, and he'll be able to see it on Sunday. And, oh, that reminds me. Mm-hmm. And I love it so much. It's a bit like uh, we were talking last week about um, the International Express guy and how he, he just continually mutters yeah, until yeah, he's yeah. in a room. Yeah. And that is a skill that certain people have of doing these long run-on sentences. That, like, A, it's a really funny thing, especially when you throw something in the middle, like, she's a lesbian, but that's all right now. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, doing yeah, yeah. a dissertation <laughs> on films. 
But it's a game that I sort of play as a little improv thing with Theatre Buddies a lot where we will to become our Kevin talking about our Sandra and how she said something to our Tina at that christening and it's all right because, well, you know, Marie, her boyfriend Arthur said something to our Kevin about it, but we're not going to talk about that because really we've got some suspicions about our Marie's boyfriend and we don't really know, you know, what he's like. I mean, I wouldn't say anything, but we think he puts his toast in the wheelie bin, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> And you just, you keep doing it and you see how long you can go for. And it's just how many names you can think of on the spot, really, and how many relationships you can think of. Um, cool. Good. My favourite quote. Um, um, it is right near the end. So it's after everybody's been kind of magicked back to where Adam thinks they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and there's a Sergeant Thomas A. Dysonbera who was guarding the American Air Base right near yeah. the end. I love this book. And apparently Adam quite liked him after all because he's been sent home. And says, Sergeant Thomas A. Dysonberger opened his eyes. The only thing strange about his surroundings was how familiar they were. And he describes he's back in his uh, childhood bedroom. Um, he walked downstairs. His mother was at the stove taking a huge apple pie out of the oven to cool. Hi, Tommy, she said. I thought you was in England. Should I try and do the accent? Hi, oh, cool. no. Um, hello. Hi, no, I can't. Sorry. <laughs> Hi, Tommy. She said, "I thought you was in England." Yes, Mum. I am normatively in England, Mum. Protecting democratism, Mum, sir," said Sergeant Thomas A. Dysonberger. "That's nice, hun," said his mother. "Your papa's down in the big field with Chester and Ted. They'll be pleased to see you." Sergeant Thomas A. Dysonberger nodded. He took off his military issue helmet and his military issue jacket, and he rolled up his military issue shirt sleeves. For a moment, he looked more thoughtful than he had ever done in his life. Part of his thoughts were preoccupied with apple pie. Mom, if any throughput eventuates promising to interface with Sergeant Thomas A. Dysonberger telephonically, Mom, sir, this individual will be... Sorry, Tommy? Tom Dysonberger hung his gun on the wall above his father's battered old rifle. I said, if anyone calls, Mom, I'll be down in the big field with Pop and Chester and Ted. I love that page oh, so much. Fuck me, that's a good bit of writing. <laughs> Just this, this slow but fast shedding of the... The military in this case, skin and just the bullshit that goes with it and hanging his rifle above his dad's old battered rifle. It's when it and goes from describing him as Sergeant Thomas A. Dysonberger to just Tom, Tom Dysonberger. Yeah. And then, oh. No, I really love that. It's bit really, be- yeah, just. Uh. So, characters, characters for me, characters. other than Thomas A. Dysonberger, mm-hmm. who, I, who I do have a soft spot for because of that page. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we kind of decided we wouldn't talk about Newt last week because he's introduced right at the end of that yeah, section. Yeah. But I nearly forgot to put him in this bit because, uh, okay, his character's not even that bad. I think I've just irrationally started hating. I was going to ask, man. can you, I know it's so hard to bring up past feelings after you've changed them, but do you remember, did you dislike him this much before Jack Whitehall? I No, I think part of it is Jack Whitehall. Yeah. I think part of it is definitely Jack Whitehall because I'm... I feel, I feel like, like you'd have mentioned it to me before if you hated him. I don't, the thing is, I didn't hate him. I don't hate him now. No. I didn't hate him before, but I never felt particularly strongly because he is a very bland character. Like, intentionally yeah. so. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd call him bland. Okay, maybe not bland. I think he's got quite an interesting sense of self when he gets to it. And by the end of this yeah. section, he's gone on... I know, I, I really hate to say it, he's gone on an interesting journey. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, oh, do you know, I'm not going to argue with you properly till we get there. Yeah. Sweet Newt 
near the end of the book where he is pottering about making t- uh, the line about um, breakfasting on unsweetened black coffee yeah. in an unfamiliar oh, yeah, yeah. kitchen. <laughs> because we've both done that. Yeah. We've definitely both done that. Um, like at house parties and things yeah, where yeah. we've woken up the next morning and sort of gone on the coffee. <laughs> coffee will do. So, yeah. so end of book Newt where he's pottering around the kitchen and where he tries to give Anathema the choice and say, do you want this second book of prophecy? Do you want to be a descendant for the rest yeah. of your life? Do you know what? That annoyed me. That's the only bit of him that really annoyed me, that bit. Oh, see, I don't because think... He, he, he didn't tell her straight away that it was there. Oh yeah, no, you do make a good point. See, so, yeah, I kind of I forgot about the bit where he doesn't tell her because yeah. she does come down and see it. Yeah. Um. Yeah, the bit where he considers not telling her, I really yeah, don't like. Yeah. But then again, he didn't do it, and we've all had stupid thoughts. Yeah, and considering like he's just had to experience trying to court this woman mm. with the yeah, cackling. Yeah, yeah. I can I can actually see his motivation there, and I like that he is trying to maybe remind Anathema she's got a choice. I think yeah. he's quite sweet there, but. Yeah, I think mainly it annoyed me because I wanted her to open it and I wanted to read more Agnes, not a weirdness. Well, I feel like because originally they talked about writing a sequel at some point and bits yeah. of what would have been in the sequel became part of the TV series. Um, so I feel like if a sequel had happened, it would have involved that book. Yeah, yeah. Maybe in someone else's hands. Or... Yeah. So no, so I don't massively dislike you, but I think Jack Whitehall playing him definitely hasn't helped. Yeah. Because I don't even hate Jack Whitehall. I just find it he just really irks me yeah we'll get to that next episode oh, yeah okay fine introduce his car instead we'll, we'll go on to oh yeah so his car's called dick turpin and it uh-huh. took me so long to get the joke um i forgot I, do you know what? every time i read this i forget the joke and i honest to god forgotten it again it holds up traffic oh yeah <laughs> like that's literally it it's not that funny a joke um I do like that his car's Dick Turpin, and I like yeah. the the description of the car as the one day before between Japanese engineering being terrible and amazing. Well, second choice for my favourite quote was going to be the haiku that the car started talking in at the end. Oh yes, when it gets healed. Yeah, yeah, magically. <laughs> no, I do like the little haikus. Okay, uh, we meet Agnes Nutter Yay. properly. Yeah, I love her. Best, best character. Excellent character. So this is obviously we're, we became aware of her in the last section in that yeah. she wrote the uh, nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter, mm-hmm. which is good. It'd be weird if someone else wrote the nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter. Mm. Um, and she predicted her own death, yeah. which was uh, at a witch trial. Newt's great, 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 great grandfather, yeah. thou shalt not commit adultery, Pulsifer. Beautiful name. I love her line when the mob turn up for her and she says, well, I should have been lit 10 minutes ago. Yes. <laughs> In the, like, the oldie English. (laughs) The uh, blowing up the entire village by knowing she was going to be burned at the stake, Mm -hmm. so filling her skirts with gunpowder and nails. That is hardcore, and I love it. Yeah, I mean, she did kill a lot of people, and they weren't necessarily all evil. But They were all evil enough for me to take joy in this. She also left a note cancelling the milk, which was quite nice of her, to be conscientious at the time of her death. So I guess the milkman lived a while away. Yeah, probably. Well, he probably lived on the farm with his coos. With his coos. Coos! Um, Kraken Kraken yeah okay this is really a character (laughs) (laughs) hey well in that you know it doesn't have any lines so when Adam is manifesting the end of the world one of the harbingers of the apocalypse is the Kraken Mm -hmm. Uh, so we get this really really nice uh, slow burn where they're just on a boat and they're not sure what's happening to the ocean floor Mm. and it's gotten way too deep 
and then suddenly rises very rapidly. <laughs> um, but it refers to the Tennyson poem about the Kraken. Do you want to hear it? Yes, I do, please. Beneath the thunders of the upper deep. As Aziraphale and Tennyson both knew, and I like the thought that... I mean, obviously Aziraphale <laughs> reads interesting poetry and things. You probably knew Tennyson. Yeah. I mean, that's the... the I, I don't really wish I could necessarily have lived through all of human history, but it would have been nice to meet some of the poets. Although I make bad life choices and would have probably slept with Byron and got syphilis. <laughs> like, just, just knowing me. Do you think angelic beings can get syphilis? Well, they don't have genitals. That's mentioned at some point in the book. Unless they try really hard. At Unless they try really hard. <laughs> I'm not sure Byron would be worth it. <laughs> so yes, this is the Tennyson poem. Beneath the thunders of the upper deep, far, far beneath in the abysmal sea, his ancient, dreamless, uninvaded sleep the kraken sleepeth. Faintest sunlights flee about his shadowy sides. Above him swell huge sponges of millennial growth and height. And far away into the sickly light, from many a wondrous grot and secret cell, unnumbered and enormous polypi winnow with giant arms across the slumbering green. There hath he lain for ages, and will lie battening upon huge seamworms in his sleep. Until the latter fire shall heat the deep, then once by man and angels to be seen, in roaring he shall rise and on the surface die. Title of your sex tape. <laughs> I can't believe I prepared that dramatic reading and that's what I get afterwards. <laughs> well, I don't know how to respond to that in an appropriate manner. I don't know, I just think it's a cool poem. It is a really cool poem. It's really messy. Uh, I really like the phrase wondrous grot. I love wondrous grot and secret cell unnumbered and enormous polypi. Enormous polypi and millennial growth. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I enjoy that and I like that there was a reference to it because it gave me an excuse to look up the poem and I haven't read a lot of Tennyson. Um, I did as a teenager and I haven't really gone back since, so... Oh, so I was really into Shelley as a teenager. Oh, that <sighs> Wearing billowy shirts and wandering <laughs> around looking a bit consumptive. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so we meet the Kraken. We meet yeah. Madame Tracy properly in this. Yeah. Again, she gets a bit of an intro in the last section, but she has a lot more to do here. I really like Madame Tracy. Yeah. And again, I don't know if it's got something to do with the casting for the show and that I like the actor playing her, but I genuinely have always really liked the character. Who plays her in the show? Uh, Miranda Richardson, who is Queenie in Blackadder. Who's Queen? Who's Queen? Oh, do it, do it. You do a good impression. Is her nose as pretty as mine? good because if it was i would have had to cut it off and that wouldn't have been very nice would it imagine the mess when she got a cold yuck <laughs> you got into it as it went along there <laughs> yeah. um i also like madame tracy because i think it's a really sympathetic and non-judgmental portrayal of sex work mm. and of an older woman having a relationship to her sexuality that isn't <laughs> it's funny because she's not sexy yeah yeah we like the fact that she also, after a little bit of anger, 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 uh, kind of comes to terms with that. She's hosting an angel for a bit. Yeah, she's very... The fact that she realises he's in there and sits down and makes two cups of tea. Yeah, that's very sweet. <laughs> I think that's a... She's very calm and very accepting. And because she's got this bollock seance business, <laughs> the fact that she sort of accepts, oh, this is what's real mm. and this is the real version of having seances... I mean, I love the whole seance bit. We've already done the quote from it. Um, but the fact that she... It sort of implies she does have some occult knowledge. Yeah. But the main occult knowledge she has 
is that people don't really want a lot of a cult, so she doesn't bother with it. Had Ollie in it. Yeah. I'm going to jump to the next group of characters we introduced, which uh-huh. is Greaser, Pigbog, Scuzz, and Big Ted. Nice. The spare horseman of the apocalypse, or other horsemen. Uh, grievous bodily harm, mm-hmm. embarrassing personal problems, yeah. uh, cruelty to animals, uh, it's not allowed to be answer phones, things not working properly even after you've thumped them, really cool people, no alcohol lager, and eventually... Lots of fish. <laughs> so what's yours? Oh, I don't know. What lesser world evil are you going to ride out on come Revelations? Oh, see, I hadn't thought about this. Did you not? No. That surprises me. Um, I think mine is uh, printers. That's good, actually. Mm. Cars that drive exuberantly through large puddles at the side of the road. Yes, that's a good one. Yeah. Okay, so it's death, pestilence, famine. Oh, sorry, death, P- pollution, war, famine, famine, war, printers, cars that drive exuberantly through puddles at the side of the road. Yeah. Okay, cool, yeah. That's I think we, we, we've got us an apocalypse. Cool. Uh, we don't have horses or motorbikes. Um, I've got a bicycle in the shed. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just gently Stopping thud. time does decrease. Yeah, we'll gently thud into a large pile of fish. Yeah. We could probably cycle over it. Oh, I mean, no. what's the correct sound effect for that? Like, if we're doing comic book effects, thwap. 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 Yeah, good. What God, I love the word thwap. A, dump, a damp thwap. <laughs> Ooh, a damp thwap. <laughs> Darling. <laughs> uh, we meet R.P. Tyler, which, as a bit of comedy, describing that slightly oh, older mate, man yeah. walking his poodle who lives in a village mm-hmm. and is a part of the Residents Association and writes letters to the editor of the local newspaper. Um, but my favourite bit of him is because he just hits a certain point of politeness, mm. where even though he's appalled at the bikers, he gives them directions. Like and, the politeness event horizon. Yes. And he uh, gets to Crowley, whose car is on fire, mm-hmm. and he's mentally composing all of these letters to the editor, and he just sort of runs out of... This evening I was asked for directions by a gentleman whose car was... Dot, 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 no. Driving a car that... Dot, 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 no. It was on fire. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. And he just stomps home on <laughs> a grump. Uh, we meet Satan, who very quickly becomes Mr. Young. Yep. Excellent representation of Satan. Yeah. Uh, I'll have more to say about Satan when we talk about the TV series, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the last new character we write, apart from... I was going to talk about Sergeant Dysonberger, but you, uh, you did that beautifully already. I also really like the idea that Heaven is an antagonist. Mm-hmm. Almost more so than hell. Um, I'm just trying to find... Uh, because it's a plot twist moment. Because Aziraphale goes to the Metatron and said, Well, I found him. We can stop the apocalypse. And the Metatron says, Yeah, the point isn't to stop it. The point is to win it. Yeah, I'm not sure. Like, it is a plot twist. And it is it's pl- confirmed. But he has been slowly coming to that suspicion from... Yeah, it's built up throughout the book. Um, and, and like that's why he's put off telling them anything and and he yeah. wasn't really sure and he was kind of working with Crowley yeah um, so yeah so maybe it's not the, ma- the the best plot twist in the world but I think it's a very well written plot twist yeah, yeah 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 and it's something again we were talking about last week and it was an interesting follow up that this book is not like heaven equals good and hell equals bad mm. it is very much about shades of grey and people being in the middle and being people yeah uh, yeah but I like that interaction between Aziraphale and the Metatron as a big confirmation of we're not rooting for heaven here, guys. Yeah. And for what it means for Aziraphale, because he was more attached to heaven than Crowley was to hell. Mm. 
So it was, I think, almost a more of a rejection for him. It reminds me of things like, I don't know, it seems to be a story that plays out again. Like, World War One reminds me a little bit of. There yeah. was no goodies and baddies as such. It was just these big world powers fighting each other and a bunch of fucking people died. Yeah, and a bunch of people were cannon fodder. Mm. And then on the other end of the serious scale, see, uh, the penultimate season of Orange is the New Black, when the two... <laughs> When the two uh, sisters are, have been fighting this endless war. Oh, yeah. So you got the what the actual foreword was referring to, which I did not. I did, yeah. And I... Sorry, leaping from topic, topic to topic today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the next bit is on page 283 on my edition. Yeah, so um, this is what the dedication to the memory of G.K. Chesterton, a man who knew what was going on. Sorry, so yeah. <laughs> so Crowley's looking at the sky, which is all fucky because apocalypse. Yeah. Um, and he thinks to himself, a livid sky on London. And I knew the end was near. Who had written that? Chesterton, wasn't it? The only poet in the 20th century to even come close to the truth. Truth with capital T. Um, so that made me look up G.K. Chesterton, who I didn't know a lot about, who you kind of mentioned last week. Yes, because it's the book's dedication. dedication. And so I was like, ooh, Chesterton reference. Let's look it up. And it's a really cool poem. Um, it's called uh, oh fuck I didn't actually write down the title I think it's called The Old Story or something I'll link yeah. it anyway but I thought I'd just read the first and the last stanzas um, because they're really cool mm-hmm. a shock of engines halted and I knew the end was near and something said that far away over the hills and far away there came a crawling thunder and the end of all things here for London Bridge is broken down broken down broken down as digging lets the daylight on the sunken streets of yore the lightning looked on London town, the broken bridge of London town, the ending of a broken road where men shall go no more. Um, and it's quite long, so I'm just going to, as I say, skip to the end stanza, which is the relevant one. A trailing meteor on the downs, he rides above the rotting towns, the horseman of apocalypse, the rider of the shires. For London bridge is broken down, broken down, broken down, below the horn of Huntington from Scotland to the sea. Only flash of thunderlight, a flying dream of thunderlight had shown under the shattered sky a people that were free. Isn't I it? like that. Yeah, right. Yeah, some good words. Good work, Chesterton. Gonna get into that poetry. Yep. I also like... So Tennyson can wait for a little while for me. Yeah, well, I... I um... Yeah, do you know where the Horn of Huntington is? I forgot to look that up. No, I'm assuming it's like a land thing. Yeah. Sorry, that uh, that was better in my brain. <laughs> like a land, uh, like a, like a, this is the horn of this kingdom kind of thing. Well, yeah, the horn is normally something that, is hunting done anywhere near a coast? Because it's normally something that I don't kind know. of like, I didn't look sticks any of out. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Like the horn of Cape, what's it? Uh, Cape of Good Hope. No, no, that's Blackadder. <laughs> All right, let's go away from this. We are just talking shit. <laughs> it's possible we don't know anything about geography, apart from Oxbow Lakes. Oxbow Lakes happen when a river does a big old loop and... Eventually part of the river cuts off and becomes yeah. a lake. Yeah. Because the river starts taking a more efficient route. And do you know why it does that? Because it's getting away from a tangent. Next one, Joanna. <laughs> Gardener's Question Time. This is yours. Oh, fuck, yeah, sorry. Um... <laughs> uh, because I have never listened to Gardener's Question Time and I take it from this you have? Oh, yeah, so my last jobby job, proper job, um, we have Radio 4 on basically all day. Yeah. Because we found it calming. Oh, yeah, Apart from see that. the radio plays, which were occasionally really weird and shouty. 
Uh, but Gardner's Question Time comes on latish on a Friday afternoon. Um, as it is, I'm guessing here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's Saturday, technically. Oh, it is Saturday, isn't it? Oh, I guess it's played again on Saturday, probably. But it's it's very, very English. And I know we keep saying that, and we're the yeah. worst. But it's a panel show. It's a live radio panel show, or live recording. Yeah. Um, and they go to a new town each week, and they let the locals ask them questions about gardening. And there's four gardening experts, or three maybe. And... It's very gentle and very nice, and it always starts to switch my brain off for the week when I listen to it. Um, you know, back when I didn't work Saturdays. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, what's that like? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's the, the little just rambling monologue again. Yeah, um, but, but it starts in putting in... Gardener's Question Time, coming to you from Tadfield Gardening Club. We were last here in 1953, a very nice summer. And as the team will remember, it's a rich Oxfordshire loam in the east of the Paris, rising to chalk in the west. The kind of place, I always say, doesn't matter what you plant here, if it'll come up beautiful. Isn't that right, Fred? Yep, So Professor Fred Winbright, Royal Botanical Gardens. Couldn't have put it better myself. Um, anyway, it carries on, and then... And we get a question from Mr R.P. Tyler. From Mr R.P. Tyler, yes. Um, but... Uh, a rather apocalyptic question. <laughs> um, that's right. Well, I'm a keen rose grower, but my prize-winning Molly Maguire lost a couple of blossoms yesterday in rain of what were apparently fish. What does the team recommend for this, other than place netting over the garden? I mean, I've written to the council. Um, <laughs> Which you would do. Yeah. Like, I'm writing to the council about a surprise rain of fish. Yeah. And then just a very calm response, not reacting to the absurdity of the situation, as I would imagine the Gardener's Question Time Radio 4 in general would not. I'll tell you what, I'm um, sorry, I'm not quoting anymore. I'm revising my last week's answer of what I find reassuring in adults, because I think yeah. I said something non-committal like teachers or something. Radio 4. As long as Radio 4 is going, I'm actually, cause I it's listen, probably all going to be okay. I do listen to quite a lot of Radio 4, especially... Uh, and no Gardener's Question Time. No, because I'm not normally listening to the radio on a Friday afternoon I listen to a lot of radio in the morning and then there's some shows I keep to listen to because I tend to need a bit of noise on when I'm falling asleep oh sure so you, you download the um, uh, kitchen cabinet yeah. I normally end up listening to sort of over three days because Jane Rayner's voice does lull me to sleep beautifully this is the gardening version of kitchen cabinet oh no I, I figured that from the okay, right, right. describing it I was like yeah no that's kitchen cabinet but for yeah. gardening yeah. No, um, we will link to these shows in the show notes because there are ways to listen abroad yeah. and they are wonderfully soothing so kitchen cabinet is my soothing one mm. um, unbelievable truth which is a really funny panel show yeah love that yeah which I got to see a live recording of which was really fun see and free it's the one with uh, David Mitchell right yeah yeah um, and what's the other oh I like to listen to women's hour in the morning as well because of course you yeah, purple toast at night for women's hour yeah <laughs> And well, I like the radio plays as well because I'm trying to write radio plays. So for me, it's like... Oh, really? I hate them. Don't write any like that. <laughs> but like, so I can't go to see live theatre yeah. and get ideas and yeah. think about how theatre works as often as I like, but I can listen to as many radio plays. No, obviously, I'm being hugely mean here. It's just that it's the bad ones that stick out in your memory. Oh, like... yeah. And the bad ones are really bad. Like yeah. radio plays, it's very difficult not to get very overactive very easily. Yeah. And um, it's when I was trying to like proofread and we've been using Radio 4 as background noise and then suddenly someone was screaming on the radio about fucking UFOs sometimes. I don't, oh, maybe the end times happened but I wasn't paying attention. That's entirely possible, Francine. Yeah. Um, I feel like you and I will both doze through the actual apocalypse. Um, I, speaking of dozing through things, 
this first came up when I was doing A-level philosophy. Segway. Segway. We're doing well. (laughs) (laughs) How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? And I did actually put this into my notes because... Mm -hmm. So... Was that something philosophers actually... It is a reductio ad absurdum challenge to medieval scholasticism, especially angelology. (laughs) Although it was first recorded in the 17th century, so this is in the context of Protestant apologetics. So say say your philosophy title for us again. Uh, reductio ad absurdum. Definitely sounds like a Harry Potter spell. <laughs> reductio ad absurdum. Have you never heard that phrase before? No, I did not take philosophy A-levels. Well, it's not just in philosophy. It's quite a common phrase in like rhetoric and debate and arguing. And it's the idea of um, taking an argument that you think might be a bit silly to some ridiculous logical confusion to try conclusion trying to point out how ridiculous it is to be questioning something at all so this was like i said this was a response to um medieval scholasticism and angelology Mm -hmm. which was this 17th century obsession with uh the medieval scholastics of christianity specifically Mm -hmm. and the weird studies of angels and the nature of them and the mechanics of them because there was so much study into that Mm -hmm. and the philosophers that would challenge it um because and, and t- Thomas Aquinas was really into the Thomas Aquinas is a wanker <laughs> fucking hate Thomas Aquinas anyway what, is he medieval as well? no no he was one of the scholars of medieval scholasticism oh I see um, why do you hate him? because oh, I had to study him okay and this is some of this is stuff I printed out so it's, it's linked to the fall of Constantinople, Constantinople in, the, in this idea of scholars arguing while Turks were besieging the city Istanbul, not Constantinople. Constantinople. <laughs> so it's it's this idea of why are you bothering with this? It's ridiculous. And while you argue about this, Turks are invading. So yeah, so that how many angels can dance on the head of a pin or how many angels can stand on the point of a pin is kind of a, or if you're going to argue about all of this stupid stuff that doesn't really matter, why not try and decide how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Oh, oh, I'm glad they agree with me. Yes. <laughs> um, it's a fun thing. And well, that's what a reductio ad absurdum argument is. Okay. Cool, cool. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I don't speak Latin. So, speaking of Crowley, shrinking down between answer phone things, um, he is described at one point in this book, mm-hmm. and this is, you know, he has not had a nice day. He's not. Um, Armageddon's underway, can't do anything about it, it's going to happen at Tadfield, he's in trouble with hell, he just kind of killed Haster and trapped Liger in an answer machine. Other way around. Killed Liger, trapped Haster, and I was 50, 50 chance of being right there. <laughs> Everything is terrible. He should find a nice little restaurant, get completely and utterly pissed while he waits for the world to end. But, I agree. Um, and I will read this out, but not the whole quote. Um, Underneath it all, Crowley was an optimist. If there was run rock-hard certainty that sustained him through the bad times, it was the utter surety he would come out on top. <laughs> so I posit to you that Crowley is, in fact, the anti-Rincewind. Hmm. Where Rincewind is determined that no matter what happens, it will not work out well for him. Yeah. Crowley at the... You could argue rock bottom. Like, M25's on fire, the bookshop's on fire, the book's on fire, his car's on fire. And with the complete opposite of Rincewind's determination to run away from trouble, Crowley is holding his shitty car together with pure willpower to run into trouble. Because he knows full well that the universe will, or he really feels that the universe is going to look after him, so we best try and fix all of this. Nope, yep, I fully agree. Andy yeah. Rincewind, love it, well done. And I think this nice might be why I love Crowley so much and where I did struggle with Rincewind, although Ooh. I've now come round to Rincewind's mm. casual nihilism. Yeah, yeah. You, you've talked me into it. We'll see if I still feel so like different, that. different side of the same coin. Yes. Metaphor. Uh, non-poetic metaphor. 
Um, you, I don't have examples. I have examples. Excellent, good. You're, you're on... You're in charge then. Yeah, it would have been a bit dickish of me to randomly put that down and say, find examples for me, Jane. <laughs> um, yeah, I really like that although there are some beautiful bits of description, there are also, even more so than in most Discworld novels, some just really blunt, non-poetic bits of metaphor that I think are even more effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them describing the sky, but the first one I've got is uh, after Liger is holy watered. So looking like a handful of mashed slugs. Ooh. Beautiful simile there. Yep. Um, oh, in fact, all of these are simile rather than metaphor, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> um, as though the sky had been painted by an enthusiastic amateur. I rather like that one. Yeah. Clouds overhead, curling like a pot of tagliatelle on full boil. <laughs> That's why I was asking you earlier how to spell tagliatelle. Ah, um, tagliatelle and, and then telly. Yeah. And lightning flashing like a malfunctioning fluorescent tube. Marvellous. Yeah, so there's a few more along those lines, but um, I, I, I like good writers, I like to think that because so many of them did uh, pertain to the sky, mm. that the two of them kind of had some informal competition about like yeah, non-poetic like, metaphors about the sky. <laughs> yeah, like trying to like yeah. make each other laugh. There was also one that I forgot to note down. Um, they were talking about. Uh, the the light was yellow and stretched like a forced smile, something like that. Oh, and I thought that was really beautiful because you can think of it like that yellow light you get in the storm, and it's stretched like a forced smile. And it's like, kind of sickly and unusual and beautiful metaphor. Similarly, sorry, you always correct me. Yeah, no, you're quite right. Yeah. <laughs> so there's no real way to segue into this, but I do find this really interesting that where the timelines of this book, where we split it in half based on the physical halfway point in the book but the mm. first half of the book goes from the very beginning of the world to a to 10 day uh, friday well, night two days, yeah, <laughs> friday night so like the day before the it's yeah. meant to end yeah uh and thousands and thousands of years and then also v- most of a week yeah yeah and then the second half of the book is pretty much 24 hours oh, it's saturday cool. morning through to sunday morning um, yeah that's it but one side doesn't feel more rushed than the other or like more story is happening than the other. And I think it's incredibly, obviously it's incredibly good writing. Yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> I think, a very good choice because I think a lot of books and films rush over this climax period. Yeah. And I think very deliberately they've done... They, they, the of that, the they've looked the climactic bit. Yeah, they've looked at the number of events that need to happen yeah. and given them space to breathe. <laughs> and somehow it make, it works that over a whole day, Adam goes from a 11-year-old boy to ready to end the world because he's so upset yeah. over what he's read to really human again. Yeah, and it's um, it's quite upsetting to read it, isn't it? Because it's, like, it's like this dude having all of his existential crises that we had as teenagers at once. In <laughs> one day. There's... Yeah. Um, but there is a bit where he realises that he's gone too far because his mm. friends are running away from him. Ooh. And um, it talks about him screaming and he is at this point, and this is like a big decision point for mm. him that's very heaven or hell mm. um, or somewhere in between, as it turns out, because uh-huh. this is where he chooses to be really human. Yeah. Um, it spoke of, and it describing the screen, it rattled the celestial spheres. It spoke of loss and it did not stop for a very long time. And then it did and something drained away. And that's just such a perfect description of him going through that massive transition 
in uh, 30 seconds. Yeah. And what it took him to lose all the hellishness and become incredibly human. Like I said, he's like human 2.0. Yeah. Because he's still got these Antichrist powers, but he's choosing to use them for humanness. Not good or evil, yeah. but the the middle of it. Human pro edition. <laughs> yes. So yeah, so I thought the pacing of the book was really mm-hmm. interesting. That it gives its climax time to roll around like thunder. Yes. Oh, very nice. <laughs> um, witch burnings. Uh, so the the children are, are coming round on maybe we don't need to burn witches, mm. or Adam's telling them that they've got it all wrong about witches and they're right all all along and it's wrong to persecute witches yeah. because obviously he's been reading his magazines yeah. and glossing over the fact that he was the one to kind of start, start the Inquisition <laughs> in the way that only an eleven year old yeah, can yeah. gloss over. Well, never mind all that. <laughs> but I like that uh, you know this is this is uh, the witches in this book are very feminist and Agnes Nutter is uh, in my opinion a feminist icon of sorts. Yeah, why not? Yeah. I'm up for that. <laughs> we'll build a statue. Yeah, the, uh, the, 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 the in Sallow Sphere will jump on you for that. Mass murderer, feminist icon. Oh, uh, God damn it. I don't... My, my feminist icon is your terrorist. <laughs> I don't think a lot of red pillars listen to our podcast, Francie. What? Shut I don't think that's our target shut. market. <laughs> Something shut. about the purple post-its for feminism. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Um, but I do like Pepper's line. My mother said they were only just intelligent women protesting in the only way open to them against the stifling injustices of a male-dominated social hierarchy. Yeah, but your mother's always saying things like that. Quack, quack. And, uh, yeah, nice little patriarchy duck moment there. But I was the, gen- the book gently mocks feminism in a way I don't mind, where you know you get those people, and I've been guilty of it, mm. where you're sort of having an offhand conversation. They're coming, yes, but this is an injustice of the patriarchy based on social hierarchies invented in 1872 by Thomas Edison. It's not always a bad thing, but there is a way that is inject- interjected into conversations. It's like, okay, yeah. God, we get it, you're intellectual and woke. Mm-hmm. But also, we are we're just talking about crisps. Mm. I do like the whole woker than thou... <laughs> I feel bad that it's been co-opted because it was originally quite a good term being used in sensible ways. And but as with I think all it terms, can be used as both. Yeah. Uh, names. Yes. I did you look this up because I did. I looked up some of this. Um. Yeah. I'm not sure which way. Uh, tell me yours first because yours looks like a different theme to mine. Okay. So I was curious about the likes of uh, Joshua Device. Mm-hmm. Humphrey Gadget, Peter Gizmo, Cyrus T. Doodad, Ellery yeah. Widget. All on a very obvious theme. <laughs> yeah. So some of these are like names from from things, but okay. I was looking. Well, I was looking at the actual origins of the names and the idea of things being named after people who invented them. Uh-huh. Lord Sandwich being the obvious example, but mm-hmm. that story is widely accepted to be something of a myth. Yeah. Um, um, although there is a funny black elder joke. About yeah. Uh, and a lot of funny jokes about it in Monstrous Regiment, of course. Yes, there are, and I can't wait till we get to that book because I love it so much. And one pretty funny joke about it in The Last Continent. Yeah. We'll get there again. Mm-hmm. Um, Thomas Crapper's a great example in that he is famously thought of as the one who invented the flushing toilet. And really should have been. Um, he did not invent the flushing toilet, but he did invent the bullcock. I just really wanted to say bullcock. Good. Uh, which is, has something to... I don't know how toilets work. I'm not a plumber. I don't know if you knew that about me, Francie. And he did also make toilets. Not personally, but like he... Thomas Crapper is the name of the founder of a plumbing and toilet making company. Oh, but he okay. did not invent the flushing toilet. And I first learned that... Uh, this is tangentially re- relevant to where we are. So Terry Jones, the Monty Python guy, recently passed away. Hmm. He had a series of kids' books called The Knight in the Squire, The Lady in the Squire, oh, which yeah. is set in medieval times. And in one of them, 
a kid puts his foot in a privy and there is a very, very long Pratchett-esque footnote about the fact that this would have been less of a problem if it had been a flushing toilet, which people think is invented by a guy called Thomas Crapper, but wasn't. And it's like a half-page footnote about the history of the flushing toilet. And he just really wanted to get that fact in his book somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Uh, Which makes me love Terry Jones all the more and makes me slightly more sad. So yeah, Thomas Crapper. So actual names it mentions in here. Gadget comes from the front gachette, lock and gadget tool. Oh, cool. Uh, widget appears to have vaguely evolved from gadget. Gizmo is made up, but it looks like it has its origins in 1940s US military slang, which makes me think if I Googled a bit more, I would have found some weird acronym thing because a lot of, mm. especially 30s and 40s military slang, are weird acronyms. Oh, also, I really like when I find words or acronyms that I forget acronyms like radar and laser. Mm. And um, I mean, snafu is obviously an acronym because it's not a real word, but it's so often used in conversation, people forget that it's an acronym. Yeah. Um, I first learned what it meant when I got some special Ben and Jerry's ice cream called Snafu. Strawberries naturally all fudged up. Hey. Ah, Dilly Gaff. Dilly Gaff's a great one. Uh, I could not find the origin of the word doodad. So I think it may have been a name at some point. It might just be nonsense. It might just be nonsense. Joshua Device was a real person. He was a Victorian explorer. Oh, okay. Um, But the word device... It has its origins much older than Victorian times. It was a four, um, 14th century French divide. Uh, the, or the word device comes from divide, which comes from 14th century French. Oh, okay. Uh, but it was a device as in like a motto or an emblem. Oh, so does device and devised, do they not share the same root? No, they do. They all come from the same place. So okay, device, okay. devise, divide yeah. all come from devere, which has its origins in 14th century French, but is Latin if you go a bit further back. Cool. Uh, but the word device meaning device specifically meaning a motto or an emblem. So like if you have a shield with and a rampant lion on it, the rampant lion is a device. Oh, so something along the frames of this or that of their own device. Yeah. Yeah. Um that uh was used as early as fifteenth century English, so it definitely meant a thingy yeah. before Joshua device was a thing. <laughs> so that was uh, That's a nice sentence. Um the gadget names I looked at, but you cool. had a bit more on Device and nutter. Oh yeah, because um, because you'd written down device. Um, I I slotted in my fact here. Um, That's cool. But basically, uh, do you, how much do you know about the Pendle Witches? I know a bit, but what I mostly know is from a fictionalised version of uh, some of the Pendle Witches. A really good, aimed at slightly younger readers, but very good uh, sort of fantasy series called Spooks which is set around Pendle around the time of the Pendle Witch Trials. But there's we've also... linked this in the show notes before. Yeah, I can't remember where it mm. came up before. So when we've do... we talked about a Joseph Delaney book before, mm. uh, something about um, you could tell a witch if she was wearing pointy shoes. Yeah, yeah. Because I wore pointy shoes when I met the author and he sort of went, oh! <laughs> it was good fun. Good. He's, exactly. a, he's a lovely bloke, actually. Um, um, but so yeah. yeah, yeah. So they turned up when I was looking up... Um, which which burning in general? Yeah, uh, because it's one of the most famous ones. Um, it's sixteen twelve. Uh, twelve people were accused of the murder of ten people by witchcraft uh, in Lancashire. Yeah, um, around Pendle Hill, which I think I've climbed. Cool, but you were a bit lost. Well, we climbed the the. We were following the signs for Pendle Hill, and we climbed up a big hill. So. As yeah, far as I'm that. concerned, we climbed Pendle Hill. Good. 
released a healing pendle. Close enough for government work. Yeah. Um, six of the 12 accused came from two families. Mm-hmm. This is all very small town drama. Yeah. And I love it. Um, but both were headed uh, by a matriarch in her 80s, which I also love. Yeah. Uh, so we love a matriarch. <laughs> the, one of the families was headed by a woman called Anne Whittle, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, which I think is a lovely name as well, Whittle. Little. Um, and the other was Elizabeth Southerns, whose daughter, which is why you didn't come across this immediately, her daughter was called Elizabeth Device. Ah. Um, one of the others who were accused, not part of these two families, was called Alice Nutter. So my guess is that Device and Nutter both come from this story. Trials. Um, and the whole thing is a real fucking drama. I we, I really don't have time to go through it properly, um, but it's very well recording thanks to Thomas Potts. Uh, the Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancaster, humorously yeah. spelled in an oldie-timey way. <laughs> um, but uh, you're going to have to look this up on your own time because it's a super interesting read. I will just give you a teaser. The triggering event, event did involve pins amazing mm. like i said some of it is because oh, alice nutter is like a character in these in these spooks books so i remember oh, some of it from oh, that oh, oh. yeah i didn't alice nutter was linked her own wikipedia page um unlike most of them and i did not follow it because i am learning rabbit hole i am learning to cut off my research where i intended to sometimes on account of sometimes i need to eat go to work sleep sleep Greet yeah. my husband. Um, sorry, I'm trying to remember. So yeah, speaking of Alice Nutter, mm-hmm. about Agnes Nutter's descendant, Anathema. Uh huh. What did you think of the whole there being a romantic plot in this? Well, I, th- I think you. I think you should do your opinions first because mine are, are very much constructed in, in an attempt to soften yours somewhat. Yeah, that's fine. And so it seems silly to do it the other way around. So, this is where the pacing I don't think quite works. In one day, Newt gets dropped off at Anathema's, mm-hmm. injured. Mm-hmm. There's an earthquake. Mm-hmm. They shag, and then mm-hmm. they try and go save the world. Yeah. I just... It feels like they don't need to shag there. And Anathema only really goes along with it because it's predicted and preordained. And there's a whole tangent I'm not going to go on about preordained and destiny and time travel and... But it doesn't seem like Anathema is at any point really into him. She's very much, oh, the book says so, and he's here, and I guess he's not that bad. Mm -hmm. And then they have sex. And I don't know, it feels weirdly shoehorned in. Like, there doesn't need to be a romance. There is already a very sweet romance between Shadwell and Madame Tracy. I'm not a prude. I don't mind shagging in books, either fade to black as they kiss or, you know, full graphic descriptions. That would be weird in this book. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a really upsetting footnote, actually. (laughs) I do not need to see the word throb in a good opens. For some reason, my brain just pictured an asterisk and then in, out, in, out, shake it all about. (laughs) That's because you made me do the okie-cokie last week. There we go. Well, um, I'm not sure if I left that in. <laughs> Call back. Um, um, I, I, yeah, it just feels unnecessary. Okay. So, yeah, it is unnecessary. I'm not sure that's a big problem. And I think there's a, a reason for it being... Well, it's, it's hinted at, but I feel like it's kind of... You could uh, get to it anyway. It's hinted at as to when 
he's driving, Newt's driving down and he says that his uh, ancestor would have turned at his grave had he been given one if he knew what was about to happen. Mm. I feel like the whole thing, because yeah, Anathema's not that really into it and she's only leading because Agnes did it. I think she just put it in to make that happen to piss off the memory of thou shalt not commit adultery, Pulsifer. Okay, when you put it like that, I like it a lot more. Yeah. But there is, that definitely still adds in some dubious consent stuff. Yeah, um, I don't know, I don't know how, I mean, it how is the consent the... stuff works when she's yeah. technically voluntarily going along with she's everything, but, going but along she's with been kind of told like... her whole life that all this is preordained. Yeah. So does she feel like she has a choice? I don't know. This yeah. is a whole area of consent law that I hope never actually has to be solidified. Because there's very few books of prophecy around. <laughs> yeah. Um, but because she doesn't... Well, even though she's not into it, she really doesn't seem to mind. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, and, and like they end up... They have their quite cute ending. And I said, I don't dislike their ending. And it's... Mm-hmm. I think it's having the romance in... I think I think it's stretching it to call it a romance, and I think perhaps you're disliking it more because you're thinking of it as a romance. Okay, not a ro- But they, they sort of end up... It's implied that they're them being together is part of the happy ending of the book. It is implied. I feel like had there been a sequel, they may not have been together romantically. Yeah, but they would have been not together romantically the way some couples are in sequels when they had a happy ending in the first book, where they're arguing with each other and you don't know why, and they end up back together by the end of the second book. Ooh, that's it harsh idea of what Gaiman perhaps would have come up with maybe not but like I feel like that's sort of how these things go and they they, they perhaps, put a bit perhaps. of this is how these things go I don't know I just well if she'd opened the fucking book we could have found out couldn't we <laughs> well yeah I, I think it's because romance doesn't come up a lot in the Discworld and yeah. when it does it's very sweet gentle. and subtle and gentle whereas yeah. these are two of like the main characters even if like just randomly shagging yeah they end up not really actually doing anything to avert the apocalypse although i will make the argument this is a bit of a tangent from the romance mm. point because i don't read about anything else saying that no, no, cool. yeah i see your point of view i i possibly have just justified it to myself to the point yeah. where it didn't annoy me but <laughs> so aziraphale and crowley um both try and become tutors to what they think is the Antichrist to try and influence them to their way or the other and Adam comes out 100% human. Mm. I would argue that Anathema has more influence over him than anyone else because she gives him all the magazines which inspires Mm. him to try and make the world a better place. Yes. Yeah, she is his very brief but effective tutor. Yeah. So, as much as I say, (laughs) they don't do a lot to avert the apocalypse, Anathema probably does more than anyone. Newt does fuck all. Um... Apart from have um, a weird white guilt moment. Well, no, okay. Um, we'll come back to the white guilt. I, I'm i not sure that's right. Unless I've misunderstood, Newt literally averts the, the physical war bit of the apocalypse. Oh, by switching all the computers yeah. off. Yeah, but if he hadn't done that, it would have happened anyway because Adam stopped everything. I mean, possibly not in time. It was all counting down, tick, tick. And they um, were still arguing outside. If I can... Sorry. Uh, okay, but even if, like, Adam would have done it anyway, I think it's unfair to say that Newt did nothing to avert the apocalypse when he literally averted the apocalypse, just because Adam would have done it anyway. Okay, fine. <laughs> well, this was kind of my next point, apart from uh, Newt's white guilt, is that they're kind of there for exposition. I don't think that's true, again. I, th- I, 
I'm not sure I understand the argument that people have to have this pivoting role in a plot to exist and be good well, and don't. useful and entertaining. They don't, because there are loads of really amazing side characters yeah. in this book that have these huge backstories and are only there for a page, and they're not yeah. pivotal to the plot. I'm just saying, for them to be such a big focus of the book, we spend so much time with them. They are- and I'm really interested in the prophecies and Agnes yeah. Nutter. I'm not that interested in spending time with them. They are these... It's partly exposition, I suppose, but to me, they are the the straight man, they're the TV trope. We are seeing it through an adult human's eyes, and that's really the only time we get to. Well, with Newt, yeah, but I mean, I wouldn't... I mean, with both, almost, because although Anathema's a fucking weirdo, she is still recognisably a human young lady. Yeah, but she's also a witch. She always knew this was coming, and she's Mm. sort of almost riding on the spirit of her ancestors. Yeah, and they both are in a really weird way, and it's I don't know, I don't... It doesn't bother me at all that if they hadn't come along, then the same stuff would have I'm happened. Not, I'm, I'm not sure that that makes any sense to me as an argument to not include characters. I'm not saying they shouldn't be there because of that. I'm just yeah. pointing out that they are exposition characters rather than anything that drives the plot in any way. I'm not saying that's yeah. necessarily an unnecessary thing or a bad thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, it would be weird to have Sergeant Shadwell without Newt there as the straight man. Yeah, no, Newt playing the straight run to Sergeant Shadwell, definitely. Although I think Madame Tracy also does that very well. Mm. And to a certain extent, Aziraphale, while he's possessing Madame Tracy. Yeah, but the three of those and the thing together just seems like an overly hammy sitcom. The angel, the the sex worker and the... uh, If it had gone on any longer than it had, it would have become quite... Yeah, yeah, and we needed to have the... Okay, maybe I am being too harsh on Newt and Anathema. I just found I enjoyed their characters less this time. That's fair. I mean, yeah, I, I can't argue with you just not enjoying it. Yeah. Um, I just... Um, and I, but I think the fact that they're kind of a bit pointless in there for exposition mm. and that maybe because I know how the romance ends, I'm less engaged yeah. in it than earlier readings of the book. Possibly, yeah. Um, And it, I don't look for romance in books quite so much anymore. No, me neither. That doesn't help. But I think that's possibly why... Do you know what? It, it might have bugged me more a couple of readings ago, a few years ago, when... But these days, it really it really doesn't bother me if people just have arbitrary sex for no reason in the middle of a book. Oh, no, I'm not, no, <laughs> that I probably not... would have bothered romantically minded me. These days, I'm like, eh, fine. I'm Aft- not bit anti- of afternoon delight as the windows came in. Sounds yeah. great. <laughs> I'm not anti-arbitrary sex in the middle of afternoon as the windows came in by any stretch of the imagination. Like, I do not want you to think I am. I mean, the first thing people say about me is that I'm not anti-arbitrary sex in the middle of the, of the afternoon while the windows came in. I mean, they don't Maybe. call me Joanna arbitrary sex in the middle of, middle of the afternoon as the windows came in, Hagen Young for nothing. <laughs> Okay, maybe my point is just that Anathema could have done better. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's Like that. me. <laughs> this whole thing is actually, I'm just really jealous because I'm into Anathema. <laughs> and if I was Anathema, I wouldn't be into new Because like, this is one of those crushes where I can't tell if I want to be her or, like, sure, sure. be with her. Mm. I was about to say on her. That was awful. Mm. Um, I'm going to backtrack quickly because we sort of jumped around the points a bit. Um, but I did want to... <laughs> Jumped around like two people having sex in the middle of the office. <laughs> <laughs> the windows came in. <laughs> well, we found the episode. I haven't title. been able to say that sentence altogether once. I this uh... having sex in the middle of the afternoon as the windows came in. Ah, oh, see, there we. You were always better at tongue twisters. Um, this is completely different. This is talking about Madame Tracy, and the one uh-huh. thing I didn't like about her character is uh, right. So again, I get that it, this is in character, and this isn't righteous being prejudiced that. And this is the kind of slightly weirdly racist that Madame Tracy would be to have her 
made-up Native American spirit guide named mm-hmm. Geronimo. Mm-hmm. And it does make a point of she hadn't really... She just heard the name and thought yeah. it was nice. I didn't know anything about Geronimo. Did you? What, until this time? Well, no. So I knew he was something to do with horrific parts of Native American history. Mm-hmm. I didn't know any detail. Ooh, I got a podcast for you. Ooh, what's that? He was a prominent leader during the mm-hmm. Apache-US conflict, which was yeah. uh, in yeah, 1848 was, after yeah, the war of, of Mexico. A couple of years after the one I sent you, so sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, this was when Americans were settl- settling in Apache lands. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, American Native history is horrific and colonialism is very bad. And I just thought it would, obviously, I don't think anyone is disagreeing with that who listens to this podcast. But I just, um, I don't know. It's just such a weird thing to have her do. I don't but think also it is. Not. I don't think it's weird at all. I it's think that totally, is perfectly plausible. It's totally in character. Yeah. I just, like... Would you have a Native American spirit guide if you were bollocksing up a seance? Like, I'd have a Victorian ghost child that drowned in a bath. Um, Native American spirit guide. I think we just need to bring ourselves back to the 90s where Native American spirit guides were very much in vogue amongst the airy fairy yogurt weavers. Oh, yeah. A lot of turquoise jewellery going around, wasn't yeah, yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's very much um, of its time on the nose hippie re- reference. Okay. I possibly do not have enough cultural concept of context of the early 90s yogurt weavers because I was born. Yes. <laughs> well, likewise, it's, um, yeah, more that I've read a lot of the books. So if the various weavers. relatives left lying around. <laughs> That's fair. But uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, well, it is a bit to- weird reading it now, I'm not going to lie. But <laughs> let's come back to Newton Anathema then and talk about electricity and computers. Mm. Um, oh, that's me. Uh, so yeah, uh, I will open the page I bookmarked on it, but it's kind of throughout the fact that the tech references, apart from the cassette tape and the answer phone beeper, are weirdly timeless. Yeah, like is this where you if you took took the world away and just left the electricity bit? Oh yeah, the sparkling filigree bit. Yeah, I think that's probably what I bookmarked. Um, oh, yeah. If you took the world away and just left the electricity, it would look like the most exquisite filigree ever made. A ball of twinkling silver lines with the occasional coruscating spike of a satellite beam. Um, I don't know how good satellite images of the Earth were 30 years ago, but there are some beautiful images that look just like this now. Yeah. Um, and it's very true. And uh, But I mean, not as be- beautiful as he's describing because it's not showing the, it's showing the pinpoints of electricity rather than the... Rather than the links of it all. Yeah. Um, so A, that's just a beautiful bit of description. And it carries on to say there are... It, most of the electricity is musculature. Mm. And... But now some of it has brains. Yeah. And that's the tricky bit. And that... It's a 30-year-old tech reference that's still... Incredibly relevant now. Yeah. It's just... It's up until now, pretty ageless way of describing it. And it's just pretty... I'm not sure if it's coincidence or... Some of it's probably to do with the fact that they were working in... They were working with technology rather than in technology. They were both... Sorry. Very... They were both early adopters of various word processors and computers, weren't they? Yeah. But um, it is also 
we forget how much of it was very much. Things have moved on an incredible amount since the 90s, but all based off the same systems. Yeah. So what has moved on and what hasn't is very weird. Like, um, sorry, I was just checking if I had more detailed notes. Okay. It's a very loud maybe. notebook. I love it. Sorry. Um, it is a beautiful line, though. And I agree yeah. with you. The way technology runs through the book is this background magic. And when the four horse people are starting the war by mm. doing stuff mm, mm-hmm. and pollution's dumping out oil into the oceans and yeah. wars screwing with stuff and yeah and all that can still very much happen um but I, death's just hanging around in the background with style because he doesn't really know how any of it works yeah yeah anyway well, yeah, so well, well done them good well done, timeless then. electricity computer references yeah unlike uh my other favorite red dwarf which uses triangle cassette tapes to show the future red dwarf is such a because pl- i do love things that are set in the past representing a future oh, yeah, yeah yeah and it's you, it can't help but be based on what we have in the past. Like uh, Back yeah. to the Future is another good one as well. Yeah. Obviously, uh, Blade Runner. Uh huh. Um, My favourite always, obviously, is Ray Bradbury because charming, just charming. Um, but Red Dwarf is a great one yeah. because yeah, it's like it's just well, silly. <laughs> it would still look really eighties. Yeah, yeah. And triangular cassettes and fish. Yeah. So I just also really like Red Dwarf. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I've got such a complex about it. Mm-hmm. Apparently, I say Red Dwarf funny. And sometimes I say red dwarf and sometimes I say red dwarf. And I had to say it in a play once. Red dwarf, yellow dwarf. Small flannel. I had to say it in a play once. I had to say, oh, I was a production assistant on red dwarf. And I kept saying it red dwarf. Or I was saying it the other way around and that was wrong. I can't remember. But oh, fuck. Now someone I'm going to get a complex. I, yeah, someone who I was on stage with is a huge fan of the show and would correct me every time I got it wrong. Even if we were actually performing in front of an audience because it kind of would have been in character for both of us and i have such a complex about it now oh well i'm very sorry to have brought it up no that's fine um i'm going to skip my next point until we are talking about the tv series because i feel like ineffability is grander than just a book Mm. and i haven't googled it yet (laughs) (laughs) no i vaguely know what ineffability means it's uh it's ineffable yeah yeah ineffable you can't eff it you cannot Cannot be effed. Or is it like inflammable? No, where it actually is effable. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Possibly. Now he's ineffable. <laughs> and inflammable. No, he's a very naughty boy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, right, Jack, sorry. Oh, yeah. Circling back to Monty Python and that line. Jack said that he thought that line would never be funny again, that he's not the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy. Because he's seen it so many times yeah. and it's referenced. But it actually just once more became funny when he was he was listening to Radio 4. Ooh, I'm cycling back to so many things. Ooh. He was listening to Radio 4 and Terry heard about Terry Jones dead. And the newsreader said, utterly dead, Pan. Terry Jones, uh, famous for the life of Brian, such lines as, he's not the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy. <laughs> They're <laughs> just proper deadpan newsreader voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's amazing. I love that. That's perfect. <laughs> uh, non weapons used as weapons. That's neat. Yes. Um, Sarah, slight callback to the sticks and stones may break your four horsemen, but words will never hurt me. Uh, <laughs> the the non weapons used as weapons. So the, the kids using these things as metaphorical weapons grass. doesn't quite fit, but yeah. there are several things in here. Anathema's bread knife. Yes. Uh, occultist bread knife. Uh, of the, course. The, the exact weapon slash occult knife used later in Discworld uh, by some witch or another. Yeah. Uh, uh, 
what's his chops? Crowley. Oh, plant mister. No, but yes, nice. Yeah. Um, Crowley's uh, gets out a tire iron to oh, fight yeah. the devil with. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, oh shit, there was one more and I forgot that. It's not coming to me, so let's pretend it was Mister. Um, but yeah, it's just—it's something that Harry Pratchett fucking loves. Loves throughout his books, he loves Tiffany aching with her frying pan. Yeah, um, he loves the peasants who rise up during a revolt who and don't take have the weapons. Yeah. yeah, they don't have weapons. Turns out, aside is a really fucking good knife. Yeah. <laughs> Plows and and he's been using it every day for twenty years. You haven't touched your sword in, in twenty years. Battlefield yeah. in twenty years. Yeah, that kind of thing. I don't know why, but clearly that idea just really tickles. Pratchett. And I do like it that it crops up in here. Yeah. Um, especially because you have these like big actual weapons. There's the mm-hmm. flaming sword yeah. of it all and there's... The flaming sword of it all. <laughs> oh, the flaming sword of it all. I don't know if Death actually has a scythe. I don't think he's referred to as having a scythe. No, I don't think he does. No. He's not quite Grim Reaper. No, he's not. He's a, he's Horseman Death. Yeah. yeah. Who I don't think he's mentioned as having a scythe. I'm not going to get yeah. revelations no. out again. Um, and as Get your are, revelations out, love. For the lads, for the lads. <laughs> four groom riders, four groom riders. Get your revelations out for the lads. <laughs> um, we are now rounding the end to the end of the episode and oh, the good. end of the book. Yeah, I know we babbled too long again. No, I've enjoyed it very much, actually. I think we might just end up with a longish episode. <laughs> We've been interesting this time. There are two bits right at the end of this book that really make me well out. And one is the last little paragraph of, if you want to imagine the future, imagine a boy and his dog and his friends in a summer that never ends and kicking a pebble. And imagine a figure, half angel, half devil, all human, slouching hopefully towards Tadfield forever. Mm. And that makes me proper well up because it makes me think of Terry Pratchett and how inside him was probably always that boy kicking a pebble, slouching hopefully towards a village in an endless summer. Mm. Did you watch that? uh, Back in Black. Is that the one the dramatised documentary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That had the guy playing him. Oh, yeah, makes me cry. Yeah, I thought that was really good. I, I thought, thought it was, was really, going to be shit, but it was really good. I thought it was really nicely, respectfully done. Mm-hmm. I th- was worried it yeah. wouldn't be. Yeah, I didn't, know. I didn't think it was going to be shit. I thought it was going to be really weird watching someone pretending to be him, and it wasn't. Yeah, he did it wasn't. really well. It yeah. was very good. Um, we should do that at some point. Yes, we should definitely. But again, yeah. spoilers for the final book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's We're going to have like 10 to do after the final book. <laughs> This will never end for us. <laughs> we'll do Gormenghast afterwards. If you want to imagine the future, imagine two people sitting at a kitchen table with a cheap mic, podcast, slouching hopefully towards the end, end of, of a book podcast. series of books forever. <laughs> There's also um, the end of my copy anyway has like mm-hmm. a little Terry Pratchett on Neil Gaiman, Neil Gaiman on Terry Pratchett bit. Mm. And the end of the Terry Pratchett on Neil Gaiman, will there be a, it, it, it's done as an interview and it's will there be a movie then? Neil likes to think that one day maybe there will. And Terry is certain that it will never happen. In either case, neither of them will believe it until they're actually eating popcorn at the premiere. And even then, probably not. And when the TV series had its big cinematic premiere, uh, Neil Gaiman made sure that in the front row was an empty chair with a bucket of popcorn on it and Terry's hat. Fuck's sake. I know. Like, how fucking dare they? What the fuck? Mm. Sorry, this is how Francine mm. and I process emotion. Slight anger and sulky. Yes, how dare they? Uh, should we throw in an obscure reference finial? Yeah, that seemed appropriate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> cool, so Where's that was... my finial? Oh, I think I've left it in the other room. Hold on. Do you need to get the finial out? Do you get your finials out for the lads? For the lads! 
Anyway. Um, Obscure reference finial time. Yeah, you brought me a finial. It's going to be used. Yep. I haven't actually tweeted a picture of it yet. I must do that. Mm. Yeah, I looked at Instagram and uh, there's no pictures of my puppy on it. So yet. what the fuck, Joe? All right, cool. Sorry. Oh, we've got pictures of, our, of the I puppy. I downloaded on Instagram just to look at it. I followed the account now. Yep, I'm now I'll install Instagram again, but it okay. was there, it's done. I'll send you a screenshot when I put up a picture of the puppy. Disney. <laughs> By snail mail. <laughs> Post you a picture of an Instagram screenshot of your puppy. Polaroids on an albatross. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? We're not old school. Okay, so obscure reference finial. Again, I did look one up because there's so many references mm. in this book. I'm not consistently stealing this bit from you. No, and you can cool, have it cool. back for cool. the disc world. Um, but I was looking up Megiddo because mm-hmm. I was cr- curious. So Megiddo is... Uh, Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Um, Armageddon is the Greek name for this city of Tel Megiddo. A Tel is a man-made hill. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's mentioned in the book of Revelation. So it is an actual place in the Middle East. Yes. Um, and this is where they plan on taking Warlock to, except it obviously doesn't really work out because Warlock is not oh. actually the Antichrist. Oh. This is Armageddon is meant to take place yeah. in the fields yeah. of Tel Megiddo. Got, yeah. Um, and I found the quote from Revelation about it. Is it Megiddo? I've been writing down Medigo. It's Megiddo. Because it's like Megiddo. Megiddo. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Armageddon out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell yeah. Megiddo into... Mm. All right, that one mm. uh, Anyway, so from the book of Revelation... Uh, oh my God, stop reading from the Bible. <laughs> there are demonic spirits that perform signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Cool. Yeah. So that was my, uh, it's not really that obscure reference because everyone's heard of Armageddon, but the fact that it's an actual place. I've got shocked face. Shocked face, Finial. Shocked face, Finial. All right, I'll take it. Um, Did you also notice the golden dagger of Megiddo reference? No. Uh, while Aziraphale is questioning Shadwell on what anti antichrist weaponry he has, he says, "Do you have the shiv of Kali, the golden dagger of Megiddo?" Mm? So it's uh, mentioned in there. I didn't realise there was a golden dagger from there. Um, I didn't actually look that bit up. I thought you might have. No, I didn't. I, get that I far. just uh, saw the reference and noted it down. That's cool. cool. Um, nice one. And yours? Mine is Albedo, which rhymes. Ah, Megiddo Albedo. <laughs> Megiddo Albedo. <laughs> Come on, pretty much. Baby, why don't we go? Would have been there. <laughs> <laughs> that would have worked a lot better. But I forgot that was the lie. <laughs> Can we do that again? <laughs> Megiddo Albedo. Baby, why don't we go? <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, sorry. So what's Albedo? Um, oh, I've forgotten. Right. Um, <laughs> it's from the same root as Albino. Uh, it means oh. whiteness. Oh, right. um, it's the measure of how much light is reflected from a solar body. Uh, I should probably mention it was um, it was in this book when the alien pops down to Earth to give a message of joy and peace and a bit of a lecture on the state of the planet. Yeah. Um, uh, been letting ourselves go a bit with the old hydrocarbons, perhaps. I'm sorry. Could you tell me your planet's albedo, sir? Said uh-huh. the toad. Uh, so yeah, the planet's albino, albedo, uh, matters because um, it, it's going to be higher if there's more ice and cloud cover and stuff like that. So it's kind of it's a it's it's a metric used by climate scientists. Yeah. Um, 
Um, our planet's albedo, uh, should a nosy alien inquire, is uh, 30 to 35% on average due to cloud cover. Um, but this will vary a lot locally based on the geography of wherever you're honing in on. Well, that's good Maybe to know. I'll bear that in mind if a toad ever gets me. I'm going to go with happy about that because I'm oh. uh, always a bit concerned about how I'll answer a toad's questions if he pulls me over in a flying saucer. Mm. Right. It's not covered in the Debrett's Book of Etiquette. No, weirdly not. Which we have a copy of now. Fantastic. I don't think Jack's looked through it properly yet, so I won't get it out. But get your get your debrets, <laughs> get your debrets out for the lads. Right. Sorry. Should we finish the podcast? Get then? your antiquated etiquette rules out for the lads. <laughs> oh, that, that's right. Um, finish your podcast. <laughs> oh my I'm god! Yeah, I think we should go my to bed. Sorry. <laughs> Our podcast. <laughs> So, yes, those were our obscure reference videos. I notice how it's always your podcast when it's doing well. It's my podcast when we get a call from the headmaster. <laughs> Which headmaster? The demon headmaster. Oh, that was a good show. Can we do a bonus episode no, of the demon headmaster? No, we cannot because that that that's just a slippery slope. Anyway. Mm. Yeah, uh, um, let's let's finish. Sorry. Wrap I'm trying to do an outro, Francie. <laughs> Get to your outro for <laughs> Jesus. Alright, you cannot blame me for this episode overrun. Well, it's only been the last five minutes, it's been directly my fault, but no, I think we're pretty 50-50 on this. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, thank you for listening to The Truth Shall Make You Fret. Really, it has been a chore this time, possibly. <laughs> But it's been fun for us. And that's what matters. You can email us if you have any thoughts or queries at the truth shall make you fret pod at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, the truth shall make you fret. Instagram at the truth shall make you fret. On Twitter at make ye fret pod. Send us snacks, castles, or albatrosses to the usual address. Albatrosses. And until. Uh, so actually, we should probably say. That next week, we're still going to be on Good Omens. We're going to talk about the TV series, episodes one to three. Yeah. And then the week after, we're going to talk about episodes four, five, and six. Yeah, we weren't sure if we were going to split this up into two episodes last time we spoke to you, dear listeners. But um, we have Joanna's decided. now on to her fourth notebook, so... Mm. Just episode one. Yeah. <laughs> I've got thoughts, Francine. Oh, she has thoughts. Anyway, thank you for listening to The True Shall Make You Fret. And until next time, dear listeners... Try not to let the end of the world hit you on your way out. Uh, I've got to write a monologue about an old lady who's secretly a serial killer and that's why she always smells faintly of formaldehyde. That doesn't rhyme as well as the old lady who lived in a shoe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's an early draft, Francine. (laughs)